So is it time? Okay. Well, good evening. It's a real sweet blessing for Pam and I to be here and spend our Wednesday evenings in fellowship with you. Such a great, great time. Uh, as I, I was reminded this last Sunday, we, uh, Monday, began, you know, a trip around the sun one more time. But we want to make sure that as we go around the sun, that we go with the sun around the sun. So, tonight our text is going to be Romans chapter 3, verse 4 in particular. And as I pontificate this evening... I wanted to bring us to that place. Uh, We have a new year ahead of us. And we know last year was wacky and crazy. And who knows what's going to happen this next year. But we know, I want to be encouraged that no matter what happens, there's going to be a a constant assault against the truth. And not only the truth as it pertains to science, but the truth as it pertains to God's word. And that as all this assault comes for us to stand on what we know, And what we know is where we have to go to when things seem like what's going on. Uh, We we live in a a world where we experience doubt sometimes. Uh, We live sometimes where we have a lack of faith, uh, maybe in the word of God, a a promise that we don't see fulfilled in our life, a a stated will that we don't see in effect, and uh, on it goes. And when that happens, we've got to stand on what we know. And what we know is what we're going to be looking at tonight, and that is, let God be true and every man a liar. So if you would, let's stand. Romans chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. In Romans 3, verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what has the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. That God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And Father, we are blessed to have the assurance of your word. Lord, that we can rely on, we can stand on, we can grow in, we can rest in God. We can find peace in So this evening we've gathered together. I pray, Lord, that I would decrease, you would increase. Holy Spirit, have your way. And I do pray that the body is edified. And Lord, Father, you are glorified. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul, in writing to the Romans in this section of Scripture, quotes Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, where we, we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know that these words were penned by David. They were penned by David after he was busted by Nathan the prophet of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And he's confronted. And when he's confronted, 
He not only sees his sin, but he sees his sin, uh, his wretched condition, and but he also sees the importance of that his sin was against God. David says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David confessed his sins, and in doing that, there's a great relief to his soul and a great burden of weight taken off his shoulders. You see, this is one of the great blessings of confession of sin to God and before God. A great relief to our soul and a great burden from our shoulders. And that there's a great relief in that now we don't have to hide it. Nothing's hidden anymore. It's out in the open. It's dealt with. And, and the burden on our shoulders that we've been carrying around is now gone. And there's nothing holding us down and keeping us down. All that's good. But it's really small potatoes compared to what our confession does to God. What is that? Well, it's Romans 3, verse 4, Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged or prevail when you judge. What does it do? It, it, it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. And how so? Well, when we, like David, confess our sins... That confession confirms God's holy justice and his character. It shows, it proves God's word, his commands, and his judgments that are true and righteous, no matter how we might fail or falter or have lack of faith. Let God be true and every man a liar. It should that, that verse alone should bring hope to our heart and peace to our minds. Now, we Christians, I believe, are the most blessed people on the face of this earth. And I know there's other people of other faiths that could say the same thing and do say the same thing, but they would be wrong. What sets us apart from all others is not so much of basically what we feel, what we think, what we read, and, and what we say and do, but what sets us apart is we have the truth of God's word. And what sets us apart is that we can be assured of his righteous judgment in whatever goes on in our life personally and in this world corporately. The one in whom we've entrusted our eternal life to is the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the world is sets out to deceive and to tear down. And if God can be proved or shown or in some way uh, made untrue or unfaithful uh, to what he said and what he has revealed and what he has promised, then we indeed would be very pitiful. We indeed would be the most miserable people on the face of the earth. And the reason being, you, you know, is that it means all that we believe all our hopes that where we set our hopes would be found empty. Having no foundation that we can't stand on or rest on or, or grow from. We would be found to be misrepresenting God and our faith would be void. We can't count on ourselves, but we can count on our Lord. Now, as I get older, there's the benefit to getting old. Not many, but there's some benefits. 
And one of it is that you gain some wisdom. You gain some wisdom in, in, in just life. Now, Pam and I have been married a long time. We've known each other for a long time. And we know that there are times when our wisdom has fallen short. We've made some pretty bonehead decisions. And we've given ourselves the nickname of Dodo and Ditsy Doofus. Uh, and, and we live up to that nickname at times. We're very blessed. We have two amazing children, a wonderful son-in-law and a wonderful daughter-in-law, and we have six beautiful grandchildren. And I've learned over the years, not as quickly as I should have, but I've learned that in dealing with our, my children and grandchildren, that there's a huge difference between the word plan and promise. If I was to say to my grandchildren, listen, today the plan for today is first we're going to go to the park, and we get to the park, we're going to run and play and have fun, and then we're going to go to In-N-Out and have a DDAS, a double-double animal style. And we're going to have animal fries and a milkshake. And then after we're done with that, we're going to go to the Red Hawk Casino. They have this arcade there, not to gamble, not to gamble, but the Red Hawk has this arcade with these indoor go-karts, electric go-karts, and we're going to ride the go-karts. They'd be excited. But if for what, one reason or another, I was only able to fulfill one of those three, they would say, but Grandpa, you promised. And I would say, no. You see, I, I, I said, the plan for today is. Now, plans can change, but promises ought not. Plans can change because of circumstance. Plans can change because of weather, because of health, finance, Car breaks down, and most often for me, just my own fickleness. But a promise, a promise is to be kept even at our own hurt. You know the story in the Old Testament of Judges and of Jephthah, who is described as a mighty man of valor, and he's about to lead the Israelites into battle against the Ammonites. And he makes this rash vow to the Lord, Lord, if you give me victory, right? You know, you've been taught well. You give me victory, and the first thing that comes out of my house is yours. The Lord gives him victory, and he goes home, and, and what comes out of his house? His daughter, his only child. But he fulfills his vow. Now, that's another story. But he fulfilled his vow. In Psalm 15, verse 4, the question is asked, O Lord, who, who can dare be or stand in your presence? And the answer is this, verse 2 of, this is Psalm 15, verse 2. He who walk, walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change promise. Now Jesus and Matthew warned us about promises and vows and, and, and not to try to make what we promise or, or vow to do seem better or, or more weighty by saying by the, by the holy city of Jerusalem I vow such and such or you know by, by God's throne I plan to do this and that. He says don't do that. Your yes is yes and your no is no. Anything other than that and more than that is pretty much tainted with evil. And then in James, we are reminded who's really in control. 
Because in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, we read, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there or here and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and we will do that. The point is this. We're limited. We're fickle. Uh, and even at times we deceive our own selves about our own abilities, intending the best, right? Intending the best, but often we fall short. But not so with God. Not so with our Lord. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul is dealing with the, some of the advantages of the Jewish people, and he talks about circumcision in chapter 2. And he, he brings up, and he says in chapter 2, he said, if circumcision is, has value only as it's put into practice according to the will of God, and if those who do the will of God are as good as circumcised even though they're not circumcised, then he asks the question, what's the value? What's the value of a, of a Jew? What value do they have? Because if true Jewishness, he says, is internal and not external, if circumcision is to be understood spiritually and not just physically, then what is the value of being a circumcised Jew? And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. He asks the question, then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? The, the answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then the question is asked in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're a judge. In that section of Scripture, there's basically four questions followed by a what is the value of circumcision? What if some are unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, concerning Israel, concerning the Jewish people, be reminded that God made promises to them that he's made to no other people on the face of the earth. It's a great advantage that they've had. It's ingrained in them. It's seen in their history. And more than any other people on the face of the earth, they owe their existence and their continuance as a people to God. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, their Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, he called the elders of the people, set before them all the words of the Lord that he had commanded him. And all the people, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
I, I've been there. Oh, Lord, all you've spoken, I'm not going to do. You know, in the Old Testament, did they keep that? No. Time after time, they failed. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23 through 24, But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk all the way that I command you, and that it, that it may be well with you. Verse 24, But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backwards and not forward. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, he says, To you and your descendants, all the world will be blessed. All of mankind will be blessed by you. That's a promise. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis, he speaks and he says, All this land I'm giving to you and your offspring. So what advantage has the Jew? Boy, much in every way. When you take what we read here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and then add it to chapter 9, uh, verses 4 and 5, these are the advantages that are listed. They have the adoption. They have the glory. They have the covenants. They have the giving of the law. They have worship. They have the promises. They have the patriarchs. And then he ends with the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What advantage? Boy, much in every way. Yet even with those great advantages, they displayed great failure in following the Lord and being faithful to him. But know this, the point is this, their repeated failures of action indeed seems upon just a surface reading or hearing of the stories and the accounts seems to bring to question or doubt about God's plans and God's promises. Which brings us to the answer in verse 3. Does their unbelief, their lack of faithfulness, make God wrong in any way? And the answer is, by no means, not in any way. Just because the Jewish people, when the Messiah came, rejected the Messiah, does not, does not, in any way mean that God's work on their behalf was without effect. Spurgeon said this, I have to say with Paul, what if some do not believe? It's no new thing, for there always have been some who have rejected the revelation of God. <clears throat> what then? Well, you and I had better go on believing and testing for ourselves, improving the faithfulness of God, and living upon Christ our Lord, even though we see another set of doubters, and another, and yet another, ad infinitum. The gospel is no failure, as we all well know. Concerning their rejection, we are reminded of their rejection in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 11, we are told, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him, right? In John chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's where most people stop. That's all good news. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of, of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, 
And people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In Romans chapter 15, Paul states this. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that he gave to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Stephen, in his speech to the Jews of his day, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Paul and Barnabas, in, in a synagogue in Antioch, in Acts 13, 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside, judging for yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So, as anybody's unfaithfulness, anybody's failure to follow the Lord, in any way make God a failure? No, by no means. Let God be true and every man a liar. Remember the defeated, the, the, the desperate words of Pilate as he's as Jesus on trial. And Jesus says to him that he had come to bear witness to the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? Now, tomorrow, if you were to take up the challenge and go to a hundred different people and ask him what is truth, you would get a variety of answers that can be boiled down into a few categories. One of them is from the world that we know, and we used to live it and believe it before we came to Christ, and that is that truth is relative. That there's, the truth has really nothing uh, that we can, you know, just rely on, nothing that we can be guided by. Now, we know that's just a cloak to cover the, their dark deeds. When you say something like truth is relative, it's used as a cloak just to cover yourself or pretend that there's no light so you can continue on in your own sinful ways. Or we hear from the educated, those in the ivory towers of education. Well, this is my truth. Well, that's just an extension of the wrong belief in teaching that truth is relative. And somehow that truth is dependent upon my own experience or my own understanding. Know this, my truth, when somebody says this is my truth, that's just a code for my opinion. My truth is just as varied and just as flawed as there are people who spew that nonsense. It's just a convenient way to, the, to deny the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now, in verse 4 of our text, note the contrast here. The contrast is we have, in verse 4, we have... By no means, let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written. The contrast is God and man, truth and lies. And what is associated with what? Truth is associated with God, and lies is associated with mankind. Truth matters. It matters a great deal. The lack of truth in a person's life has disastrous effects. Its lack in a person's life will pervert, it will destroy, and if it's not corrected, it will finally bring death to that person, that people, or that nation. Not knowing the truth individually, it brings anxiety. 
And anxiety brings uncertainty, and uncertainty brings a, to a, 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 leads to a miserable life. It has no foundation that you, that you can rest on or be stable in or build from. But for us, we're not in that position. In John chapter 14, Jesus reassured his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He's going to ask the Father, and the Father is going to send another helper to be alongside us, to be with us until he returns. And the Father gives us the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for that. He gives us the Holy Spirit to do what? To reside in us, to assist us, to console us, to convict us to guide us, to reassure us, to lead us, the Bible says, into all truth. We're not left as orphans. Orphans in the world have no real comfort. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, a cough drop. It's a well-furnished podium. But or- orphans have no comfort in the world, really. They don't. They're desolate, they're separate, they're always on the outside looking in. They're lonely. But God has not left us that way. You see, to the shouts of the world, when the world is shouting at us 24-7, through its lies, through the media, through the ivy towers of colleges and universities, the so-called experts of our time, we see the lies in entertainment, in politics, in art, as well as in sports. Through all of that, we need to stand firm and test everything to the Word of God. And where there is conflict or where there is inconsistency, seemingly inconsistency, or confusion between the two, between what we experience, what we see out here in the world, and what the Word of God says, let God be true and every man a liar. We as Christians, we're surrounded We're bombarded 24-7 by a relentless world led by the father of lies, Satan. A world full of lies and half-truths and deceit and doctrines of demons. And to each and every one of those, as we go out into 24, and to each and every one of those, folks, we don't shrink back. The Bible says that we withstand in the evil day, and having done all, we stand. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not a man that he should lie. Again, Spurgeon's commentary on our section of scripture tonight in verse 4, he says, it's a strange, strong expression, but it's none too strong. If God says one thing, and every man in the world says another, God is true. All men are, are false. God speaks the truth, cannot lie, cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to the Christian. He or she believes God's word, and he or she thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men. And yet, I've lived long enough as a Christian. I act sometimes like Gideon. There I am, hiding from the enemy, taking care of the harvest and the angel shows up and says to him the Lord is with you O mighty man of valor and his answer and I'm going to paraphrase here his answer is the Lord is with us 
the Lord is with me, I'd like to see what it's like when he's not with me. And, and, and he goes on to say, why has he allowed all this to happen? I know of his wonderful deeds that he's done in the past, but what is he doing today? Yes, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, he says, but to, only to forsake us and leave us to the hand of our enemies. Church, when it seems like that is the case, personally and corporately, it seems that God is less than he has promised or has failed in some way to what he has said. We stand on the truth, let God be true, and every man a liar. And as we stand there, as we say that, there are going to be those that say, you Christians, you are so simple-minded. You are just, you deny reality. And to which we would say boldly and plainly, no, no, no. You misunderstand. We do not deny reality. What we take is reality and we put it under the lens of God's word. So concerning all that we might face this next year, that comes against the truth of creation, that comes against the truth that there is only one God, that would say uh, falsehoods about conception of life in the womb, that would confuse the male and female, that would push all this general confusion and this, this perverted sexual expression upon us, that would redefine and obliterate marriage if they can and are trying to do, who would reject the, the notion and the truth that in salvation there's only one way and that everyone is a sinner in need of a savior and that people who are by nature are not good and cuddly. We're, we are not righteous. And when we tell them for their own sake that judgment is coming and they would reject that and laugh at us, all those things outside of us, and as we go into 24, folks, all those things even inside us at times, fear and anxiety and doubt, and weakness and lack of faith, all those things we take under what we know, and what we know is let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? So, Father God, you have not left us as orphans. Lord, you have given us the truth, your truth, that stands on its own. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be proclaimed. And so we are thankful that we have the truth in order to live your life through us that others might receive the truth. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you help us tomorrow. And for we know not what tomorrow brings, but you do. And whatever it brings, we know we can make it. We can stand in it because you're with us. Be glorified in our lives and through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is your closing song? Do you want me to sing? No. God bless you, and have a nice rest of your week. We'll see you next Wednesday.